1 Peter chapter 5 and uh, find verse 8. So let me read from verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power for ever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for the letter, 1 Peter. We thank you for all the time we've spent, all the things we've learnt. Father, we pray today that you would once again speak to us through your word, through the words I say, might they be your words by your Spirit, and might you challenge and encourage us today to stand firm. Amen. One of my favourite series of books are the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. And we're always encouraging our Sunday school children to read this. Not many of them have. If you're a parent, um, I'd encourage you to encourage your children to read the Narnia books. They're great. C.S. Lewis also wrote a whole range of other books. And one of his weirdest ones is the Screwtape Letters. It is weird. I've never entirely managed to get the whole way through it. It's a series of imaginary letters written from the point of view of one of the devil's demons to his nephew, who's also a demon, advising on him on how to lead his subject or his patient astray. In his seventh letter, Screwtape reminds his nephew to remain hidden from his patient. He says, I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination, will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he cannot believe in you. I wonder what you make of the devil. A mythical creature... A comic figure, perhaps with pointy horns and red tights, not something to be taken seriously. Or perhaps a dark and dangerous being that should be taken very seriously indeed. 
It'll be of great use for us this morning to keep 1 Peter chapter 5 open. And I'm going to begin by reading verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, it may be that this is an idea new to some of us, or perhaps something we haven't thought about in a while. But the devil is real. He's not a myth or a metaphor. He exists today. And Peter says that he is our enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone, some prey, one of us, to devour. We are, in fact, in a war. And like any war, we must be prepared. And the key to any war is to know your enemy. We're going to put together a bit of a bio on the screens, a kind of summary bio to help us get started. So who is the devil and what does he want? We first meet the devil in Genesis in the form of a serpent, tempting Eve to eat the fruit and disobey God. But throughout the Bible, he is referred to with a number of different names. Devil itself means false accuser. Satan means adversary or opponent. At other points, he's referred to as the tempter and the wicked one. He's also referred to as one with power, the ruler of this world, the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air. So the devil is a powerful enemy. And we must take him seriously. What does he want? Well, Jesus said he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. To steal the life we have in Christ. To destroy our faith. In a nutshell, he wants us to give up on Jesus. Or at least to be as useless to him as possible. Perhaps most importantly, though, what are his tactics? How does he try to do this? In the last ten weeks, we've been going through a series through Peter's first letter to the scattered Christians. I think it's useful at the end of a series to pause and think, what was this book all about? You might have come on the away day with us um, in June, I think. And you might remember that around the main room, there was this special kind of bunting. They had 66 pieces of paper all strung together, one for each book of the Bible. And they'd summarised each book into a sentence and noted how it was about Jesus. I wonder how we'd summarise one Peter into a sentence. I have a Bible that helps me cheat at this. It gives one sentence for each book in the Bible as well. This is what it thinks is the message of one Peter. God's chosen people should live God-glorifying, Christ-like lives amid suffering and persecution assured of ultimate glory. Now for me, that's quite long. I like something bite-sized, something like godliness in suffering. But then that loses something of our identity and of the future glory we have. But whatever sentence you choose, suffering is going to be front and centre. It's throughout, right at the beginning, we see that they're scattered. In other words, they've had to flee persecution. They've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. 
We hear they're abused because they won't join in with the sin of those around them. And Peter even calls it a fiery ordeal. The readers of this letter were suffering because of their faith. But alongside this suffering, Peter urges godliness. He describes their sinful desires which wage war against their souls and urges them to abstain from sinful desires. Chapter after chapter, he exhorts them to godly living, to doing good, to loving one another. So there's a lot more to this letter, but I think godliness in suffering is a reasonable starting point. But why does Peter care? Because he can see what's going on behind the scenes. It's not just random suffering or temptation to sin. No, suffering and temptation, they're both traps the devil uses to try and destroy our faith. Suffering and temptation are the devil's tactics, in this passage at least. He thinks, if this person suffers enough, she'll decide there can't be a good God and turn away from him. Or if he keeps giving in to sin, he'll think... God can't accept me, and then despair. The devil is the father of lies, and in suffering and temptation, he wants us to believe his lies. And so Peter writes this letter to the scattered Christians. Now we could go into what this suffering and temptation looked like, but we've already done that through the last ten week series. And so if you've missed it, I'd encourage you to go online or download the podcast and listen to them again as I think you'll find that helpful. What we're going to do is we're going to think about how we can fight back. We too have an armoury that we can use. We have three weapons against the devil. The first weapon is simply this. It is remember the fight. Remember the fight. Let's read again verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The key instruction of this passage is in the first six words. Be alert and of sober mind. It's so important to get our minds right, to get our thinking straight. That's half the battle. Imagine a roaring lion. Now, I know he's not a lion, he's a tiger, but I thought of Shere Khan from the Jungle Book. Imagine him, a fierce and powerful creature, like a mouse through the tall grass, walking towards his prey. At any moment, he'll pounce. The prey, what must it do? If it stays alert, then maybe it will notice the lion and escape. If it has a sober mind, not distracted by the pleasures and fancies of the wild, but focused on survival, then it may be able to survive. But the moment it forgets, well, it's already lost the fight. The moment we forget the devil and his, the danger, that's the moment the devil gets the upper hand. Which is why the first weapon, in fact all three weapons we'll see, are about remembering, about being alert, 
And the lion, like the lion's prey, there will be certain key moments when we must especially be alert. Moments that are almost as if the devil is laying a trap to snare us. It's that moment in our struggle against unkind talk when our colleagues are gossiping and we're tempted to join in. It's a trap. But the, for the moment, we forget the devil is prowling and we say almost one almost inconsequential piece of gossip. Well, the devil's got his foothold. And before we know it, we're making fun of the boss like everyone else. It's that moment in the fight against lust when we allow our eyes to linger on an advert or our minds to linger on a thought, it's a trap. But we think, oh, I'll indulge for one minute. But the battle is already lost. How many hours lost to porn or marriages lost to adultery could have been saved by staying alert? It's that moment when our plans start to falter when someone else is being slow or late and you're there and you're thinking about all the things you wanted to do today and you can slowly feel the irritation starting to rise. It's a trap. But we let the impatience grow and then we get grumpy and then we start snapping at our children. These moments of temptation are moments of danger. It's slightly different for suffering. I'm not going to use the the language of a trap. Because actually, chapter 4 tells us that temptation is more like a test. That it's not something to avoid at all costs. Job gives us a a good example in the Old Testament, the book of Job. In chapter 1, the devil, the accuser, goes to God and claims that if Job wasn't so blessed, then he would curse God. So God allows the devil to test Job. And he loses everything, his family, his home, his business, eventually even his health. But by God's grace, Job's thinking is right, mostly. He's alert, and so he doesn't curse God, but keeps on going. When hardship comes, we must keep our heads right. We must be alert and of sober mind, lest we forget. And the devil gets what he wants, our despair and our downfall. I think it's worth saying that that's why apathy is so dangerous, why not being bothered is so dangerous. There's a story about a man who said to his neighbour, I heard this guy speaking yesterday, and he said that the world's problems could be summarised in two words, ignorance and apathy. What do you think? Well, the neighbour replied with a shrug, oh, I really don't know and I really don't care. If not staying alert makes us vulnerable, then apathy is like full-on surrender. We must be alert. We must remember the fight. That's the first weapon we have against the devil. The second is this, remember the team. It's another remember Remember the team. Anna and I have been really enjoying the World Cup. I'm sorry if you haven't. It won't be the last time I mention it this morning. There's been a lot of focus on world-class players this year, particularly Ronaldo. 
Apparently, the Portugal manager was getting a little frustrated with all the questions. Someone suggested that he was half of the team himself. And so eventually, annoyed, he replied, if Ronaldo plays alone, we're going to lose. It's true, isn't it? There are two ways, I think, that remembering that we're in a team can help us. The first is just knowing I'm not the only one. Look down with me at verse 9. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. It's knowing that it's normal. That it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Or that God is displeased with you. It might not do much to help the pain of the situation, but it will help us keep going. But it's not just knowing I'm not the only one. It's also knowing I'm not in this alone. Peter ends his letter reminding his readers of those who care for him and want to encourage him. At the top of the right-hand page, verse 12, we see Peter, with the help of Silas, wrote to encourage them. Then verse 13, she who is in Babylon, just to say, um, Babylon was in ruins by this point, so it's not talking about the actual Babylon, it's symbolically referring to a place of power that's opposed to God. So it's probably talking about the church in Rome, who, verse 13, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. You have to do a bit of cultural translation. In our culture, a kiss of love would likely be a warm handshake or a hug. The point is, they're not in this alone. They've got support. I think we've really been blessed as a church recently um, in other churches showing support to us. With London City Mission sending the Kapong family to us. With other churches in the area giving us money so that we can employ Andrew as our curates. We as a church are not alone. But as individuals as well, we're a team. I wonder why you come to church. I think there's loads of good reasons why we might come to church, to be encouraged together, to hear God's word read and preached, to learn ourselves. But the problem is, is if these reasons alone are about us, if we then decide one Sunday morning not to come, then, well, it only affects us, doesn't it? I think this is the wrong attitude to come. I think we shouldn't just come to church for ourselves. I'm not saying we necessarily do that. We often think about the vertical and the horizontal relationships, vertically with God, and surely he is the first and foremost reason that we come to church, to worship him. But then there's the horizontal too. We come to church for each other, to encourage each other as we sing joyfully together. To encourage each other by our friendship in the good times and the bad. To encourage each other simply by turning up and serving and showing each other that we take our faith seriously. 
We're in a period of change as a church. I'm sure most of us know this. You may not potentially know that Hannah and I are leaving in August to go and train at Theological College so that I can, in three years, um, become uh, ordained and go into ministry myself. Michael is going back to South Africa to do youth work there after his time with us has come to an end. But at this same time, we're getting this whole new staff team that's really exciting, new workers to come and help us. And I think it's easy to think, well, all these new people, they're going to do the ministry. But that's wrong. Their job is not to do the ministry of the church. Their job is to help the church do the ministry. Our ministries of supporting and helping one another to stand firm and to be encouraged and to keep going amid suffering and temptation, that's all of our ministry, as well as taking Jesus out into the community. In this period of change, it's mine and Hannah's prayer that this church might be built more and more into a team serving together So our weapons so far, remember the fight, remember the team, and finally, remember the victory. In most wars, it's the fight that determines the outcome. Actually, in this war, it's different. Let's read together verse 10. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. There is a time limit to our suffering. A little while. And after that little while, God himself will restore us and make us strong and firm and steadfast. It's important to ask what a little while means. Does it mean a few days or a few years now, and then afterwards in this lifetime there'll be a period of restoration? Or does it mean a few days of our lives on this earth after which when we go to heaven there will be restoration once and for all? And I think there's probably a bit of both. That there will be times of hardship now that through God's grace will come through and we'll be stronger for it. But since Peter says, he refers to God's eternal glory, then he certainly has this in mind as well. That one day, in heaven, all our suffering will cease. And all our struggle with temptation will become easy. And the encouragement is, right now might feel like a war, but it's a war we're going to win. In fact, it's a war Jesus has already won. I wonder what you'd do if you knew with 100% certainty that England were going to win the World Cup. Perhaps you'd go and place a bet. I don't know. I think what I would have done, I would have gone out and bought matching England costumes for Hannah, me and Lydia. Well, you know, kits. Incidentally, um, Hannah and I had a, a little bet, or not a little bet, a deal, that if we reached the quarter-final, I'd be able to buy Lydia a little outfit. And it hasn't arrived yet. It arrives tomorrow, but this is what I've ordered. Yeah? Or nine. So we'll, we'll, we'll put Lydia in that for next week. 
If we knew England were going to win with 100% certainty, there would have been a lot less stress on Tuesday. The anxiety leading up to tomorrow would have been a lot less because knowing the outcome totally changes everything. Because we know the outcome of the war we're in. Part of the reason we know the outcome is because of that wonderful little word called. And the word in verse 13, chosen, a word that has played such a significant role in this letter. You see, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, God has actually chosen us. Let me just explain that. If we have faith, it wasn't our doing. Him, first and foremost, he called us and we listened and came. He chose us and chose to open our eyes to the truth of his words. It's a little bit like sometimes Lydia will hold on to my finger and I'll try and kind of lift her up to standing position. But she can't hold on, she lets go. But when I then hold on to her hands, well, that's a whole different matter. I wouldn't, I'm not letting go. She's not going to slip out of my grasp. When we put our faith in Jesus, it's as if we're reaching out our hand and holding on to his. But behind the scenes, he's reaching out his hand and grabbing onto ours. He won't get tired, though we might. He won't let go, though we might. But we also know the outcome because we know, that Jesus, because we know Jesus. And we know that 2,000 years ago, he came to take on the devil and to take on sin. For 40 days in the wilderness he was tempted. He went hungry and yet he stood firm. And when faced with unimaginable sufferings, with beatings, with crucifixion, with the anger of God, he didn't flinch. He didn't shy away. But as the devil led Judas to betray him and the Pharisees to accuse him and Pilate to send him to his death, the devil was actually laying the way for his own defeat. The letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. 1 John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. As Jesus died on the cross, the power of the devil was taken away. When the accuser says to us, because of your sin you deserve to die, we can reply, no, Jesus has died for my sin. When the tempter lays a trap and through his lies tries to entice us to sin, we can reply, no. By the Holy Spirit, I now have the power to say no. And when the deceiver says in our suffering, God is not good, there's no point going on, give up and life will be better. We can look up like Stephen, the first martyr, and see with our mind's eye the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of heaven and proclaim, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The victory is won by Christ. 
The devil still roams the earth looking for someone to devour, but his time is limited. His power is limited. The war is won. Sure, we'll lose battles along the way, perhaps even every day, but after a little while, God himself will restore us and make us strong, firm and steadfast. Romans 8 sums it up better than I ever could. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or swords? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The devil is against us. We are at war. But remember the fight, remember the team, and remember the victory. To God be the power forever and ever. Amen.